بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد طب القلوب ودوائها وعافية الأبدان وشفائها ونور الأبصار وضيائها وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم أما بعد الحمد لله We are now at lesson 2 in our tafsir of Surah Al-Kahf And today inshallah we want to cover the full tafsir of verses 1 through 8 So that in our next session we will start immediately with the story of Ashabul Kaf, the young men in the cave. And before we begin in earnest, we just want to do a little bit of review. Uh, who remembers how many verses are in this chapter? 110. And which region or what place was it revealed in, Mecca or Medina? Mecca, except for two verses. It's yuqal, it's said. And what is the reason for the revelation of this chapter? Right, so two of Quraysh went to Yathrib and received those questions to ask the Prophet And the answer was given to those questions in this chapter and at the end of the previous chapter, Surah Isra. So what were those questions? The yeah, the three questions. So the furthest of the east and the west, yeah. And the Ruh. So of these, two of them are addressed in Surah Al-Kahf, Dhul Qarnayn and Ashab Al-Kahf. And the Ruh is answered in Surah Isra, Surah Bani Israel. And we, in the previous class, we were talking about the various virtues regarding this chapter. The virtues of memorizing the first 10 verses and the last 10 verses, memorizing the entire chapter, reciting the chapter on Fridays or Thursday nights, and how memorizing and reciting the first or last 10 verses are a protection against the Dajjal, we said that's because there are several themes in the chapter, as every chapter has themes, but the central theme of Surah Kaf is what exactly? Or if you look at the entire chapter and boil everything down to one central theme, what is that central theme? That's all there, yeah. What did you say? Yeah, that's all there. But if you look at the stories and you look at the multiple themes contained in the chapter, why does the Prophet ﷺ encourage us to memorize it and to recite it and say that it's a protection against the fitna of Dajjal? It's because all the themes boiled down to one is the preservation of Iman. Hifdul Iman, the preservation of Iman. And the name of this chapter is Surah Al-Kahf. Who remembers the difference between a Kaf and a Ghar? 
the two words we use we use for cave. Yeah, you could probably fit three people or so in a ghar, but it's going to be really narrow and tight. Whereas a cave, a kahf, is going to be more expansive. And that's the essential difference. And this chapter offers for us what the cave offered the young men who entered it, which is a place of refuge and protection against external fitna. Right? That's why the first story is Ashabul Kaf, and we talk about that. You think of a cave as being very narrow, very tight and cold and damp compared to a spacious home. But these young men entered the, the cave and Allah Ta'ala says about it, Yanshur lakum min rahmatihi. And He expands for you His mercy. So there's an expansion in entering the cave for these young men just as there is expansion, there's there's openings for those who apply the teachings of this chapter in the last days. Now, one of the things we talked about in the first class, and I want to touch on a little bit more, is what the scholars of tafsir call munasabat. And this is probably one of those Urdu words, isn't it? Munasaba, right? The munasaba is a relationship, right? So one of the aspects of tafsir of Qur'an is what some scholars call the munasabat, or the relations between chapters, the chapters before, the chapters after, the relationship between the beginning of a chapter and the end of that chapter. So for example, what would be the relationship between the beginning of Surah Kahf and the end of Surah Kahf? What will be the relationship between the first ten ayat and the last ten ayat? What would be the relation between the end of Surah Al-Isra and the beginning of Surah Kaf and the end of Surah Kaf and the beginning of Surah Maryam? What would be the relation between Isra, Kaf, and Maryam? How, how are these surahs connected to one another and how does one reflect some of the meanings contained in the other? This is called munasabat, and there are some very uh, astounding munasabat between these chapters and within each of these chapters. In, in the previous class, we talked about just one of these, and that is the munasaba between Surah Al-Kahf and Surah Isra, because we noted how Everywhere in Sharia, we find tasbih coming before tahmid. You say Subhanallah, and then you say Alhamdulillah. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. You say Subhana, and then Hamd is after. When the Imam raises from Rukur, he says Samiyallahu liman hamida, Rabbana wa lakal hamd. But this is coming after what? Tasbih in Rukur. So in Rukur, Subhana Rabbiyal. Azim, and then you're saying Samiyallahu liman hamida. So tasbih and tahmid come in this order. Tasbih is first and tahmid is second. So there's a relationship between these two chapters insofar as Surah Isra begins with tasbih and Surah Al-Kaf begins with tahmid. 
Surah Isra, Subhanalladhi asra bi'abdihi laylan. And then in Surah Kahf it begins, Alhamdulillahi, Alladhi anzala ala abdihin kitab. So this is one munasabah. Another munasabah is when you go back to the sabab al-nuzul, the reason why Surah Kahf was revealed. We said it was because some of the rabbis of Yathrib gave some of Quraysh these questions to put to the Prophet ﷺ to challenge him. So these three questions were put to him. The third question was concerning the ruh. Allah Ta'ala answers that question at the end of Surah Isra. And one of the names of Surah Isra is Surah Bani Israel. In some of the Mus'hafs, I think it's the case that in the, the Mughal scripts, the one in the subcontinent, it says Surah Bani Israel. And in the others, it's Surah Isra. These are two names for the same chapter. And because there's different chapters that have different names. So there's a munasabah there. Likewise, there is a munasabah between Surah Kahf and Surah Maryam. Surah Al-Kahf has the stories of the young men in the cave, the story of Musa and Khidr, the story of Dhul Qarnayn, whereas Surah Maryam has the story of the birth of Yahya bin Zakariya and Sayyiduna Isa alayhi salam. So you have a completion of these stories because you understand the Ashabul Kaf, these young men in the cave, their story is connected to the early monotheist Christian tradition. So it's addressing the early believers from within the Christian uh, community that were upon Tawheed. And you have the discussion of Musa and Khidr, and in that is a relation to Bani Israel in a sense. And then Surah Maryam responds to the claims of Christians about the uh, identity or the reality of Sayyidina Isa bin Maryam alayhi salam. And if you look at Isra, Kahf, and Maryam, you see an interesting parallel. The communities we have are the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. They come in that order. You have Bani Israel, and Sayyidina Isa comes from Bani Israel, and then you have the Prophet and this Ummah. Surah Isra addresses the Yahud. Surah Maryam addresses the Christians. And we have narratives in Surah Kahf that address both, that are also for us at the end of time, placing us in the middle, so to speak, between what addresses the Yahud and what addresses the Nasara. And in such we made you a middle ummah. We're in between these two. Not just in our, uh, our sharia, in our ways, but also in these narratives and what they're responding to. And we look at the closing part of Surah Al-Isra and the opening of Surah Kaf. We see at the end of Surah Al-Isra, Allah Ta'ala says, وَقُولِ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ الَّذِي لَمْ يَتَّخِذْ وَلَدًا وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ شَرِيكٌ فِي الْمُلْكِ وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ وَلِيٌّ مِنَ الذُّلِّ وَكَبِّرْهُ تَكْبِيرًا Allah Ta'ala ends the chapter by telling the Prophet ﷺ to say, Alhamdulillah, who has not taken any offspring, 
nor does he have any partner in the dominion, in the kingdom of the heavens and the earth, nor any co-sharer. And so glorify him and exalt his praise. So Surah Isra closes with praise connected with Tanzih. It closes with praising Allah and declaring Allah Ta'ala free of any partners or offspring. So this is praising Allah in connection with Tanzih, which is basically declaring him free of any imperfections, naqs. But then in Surah Kaf, it opens with praise again, but it declares perfections. So to put this in a simpler way, the end of Surah Isra praises Allah and then mentions a negation, negating partners, negating co-sharers, negating offspring. This is the Tanzeeb. So there's praise coupled with negation at the end of Isra. Then you come to the beginning of Surah Kaf, which is praise again, coupled with affirmation of perfection. So you have always in the Quran, you have this nafi wa ithbat, this negation and affirmation. Qul huwa Allahu ahad, Allahu samad, affirmation. Lam yadid wa lam yulad, wa lam yakun lahu kufuwan ahad, negation. Always or almost always in the Quran, you find affirmation paired with negation or vice versa. And so there's a relation between the end of Isra and the beginning of Kahf because one is praise with negation of partnership and the other is praise with the affirmation of perfection. Always you have these two paired. This uh, and then this kamalat, the negation of imperfection and then the affirmation of absolute perfection. Uh, and lastly, before we go to the actual tafsir, what is the relation between the opening and the closing of Surah Kahf itself? We know that there's uh, similarities between the first 10 verses and the last 10 verses because there are various hadith which tell us to recite or memorize the first 10 and the last 10 as protection against the Dajjal. But when we look at the chapter as a whole, we see that it opens with mention of praise for Allah Ta'ala in His essence, attributes, and actions. And then it closes with mention of Tawheed again. قُلْ إِنَّمَا أَنَا بَشْرٌ مِثْلُكُمْ يُوحَى إِلَيَّ I say, I am but a man like you. It is revealed to me that your Lord is one. And then there's the command to only worship Him. So that's one connection between the beginning and the end. Another is that in the beginning of Surah Kaf, Allah Ta'ala mentions in the context of Hamd, the revelation of the book. Alhamdulillahi anzala ala abdihi al-kitab. So there's mention of the book in the beginning, in the context of Hamd. And then you come to the end, and you see mention of the tremendousness of Allah's kalam. The book is Kalam Allah. It's the speech of Allah. And then at the end of the chapter, there is again mention of this Kalam Allah. Because the verse which says, If the ocean was ink for the words of my Lord, So there's mention of if the oceans were ink for the words 
of my Lord, then the words, the ink would have been extinguished before finishing the words of Allah. So Kalam Allah mentioned in the beginning, Kalam Allah mentioned at the end. So these are just some of the munasabat that the scholars of tafsir mention. And they're basically using their intellects to explore how the beginnings and endings connect with one another, how the end of one connects with the beginning of the other, how, how all of these things kind of merge together to identify themes. So in our first class, after introducing the subject matter and talking a little bit about the virtues and the munasabah, we began with our tafsir of the first and second verse. And we got up halfway through the second verse. So we'll start from there again, work our way through to the rest, inshaAllah. So in the beginning of the chapter, Allah Ta'ala says, Bismillahir Rahman Rahim, Alhamdulillahilladhi anzala ala abdihin kitaba wa lam yajallahu iwaja qayyiman. So Allah Ta'ala praises Himself. Praise be to Allah who revealed the book to His servant and allowed in it no iwaja, no distortion, no crookedness. So in this verse, Allah is telling us that His Kitab, His scripture, is complete in itself and it completes others. There's no crookedness. It explains everything one needs to know regarding proper belief in Allah Ta'ala, the messengers, the unseen, the halal and the haram, the shara'i', the means of entering Jannah and avoiding hell. It has warnings and glad tidings and all of these things. It is free of any imperfections or any crookedness in its language, its structure, its syntax, and there's no crookedness in it if it is understood and followed, meaning it, does, it will not take you to this extreme or that extreme because it's straight. So what we said regarding Sirat al-Mustaqim also applies here. So after mentioning, praising himself, who revealed the book to his servant and did not place in it any crookedness, he then says qayyiman, which is basically saying straight or upright. So we explored in the previous class why Allah negates iwaj, which is crookedness, and then affirms it being upright. You know, if you say to someone, this road is straight, you don't need to add that it's not crooked. Because by saying it's straight, you've automatically, implicitly negated crookedness. So why then does Allah Ta'ala say that there's no crookedness in the book and then say that it is qayyim, upright and straight? Very good. And the scholars of tafsir say that is because it's not simply a synonym or mentioning a further quality that's identical or the opposite of iwaj. Meaning by saying qayyiman, it's not simply the opposite of iwaj, which is negated. It's saying that it's qayyim insofar as it 
can enable the person who takes guidance from it to be qayyim in themselves, to be upright and straight. So this is the meaning given to qayyiman. It keeps others upright and firm and it protects their interest. This means that the very first part of Surah Al-Kahf, Allah is praising Himself who revealed the book to His servant and did not put any crookedness in it. Rather, it is upright and perfect in itself and has the ability to make servants upright as well. So that's the basic meaning of the first verse and qayyiman, which is in the second verse. So now we're going to go into the second part of the second verse and work our way through. So this is the next part. Qayyiman liyunthira ba'tsan shadidan min ladun وَيُبَشِّرَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ الَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ الصَّالِحَاتِ أَنَّ لَهُمْ أَجْرًا حَسَنًا Allah Ta'ala describes the book as being upright and not having any crookedness in it. And then He says to warn of a severe punishment from Himself and to deliver good news to the believers who do righteous deeds that they will have an excellent reward. What we find here is Allah Ta'ala mentioning the reason for the revelation of the book, which has these qualities we've just discussed. Why has Allah Ta'ala revealed this book upon His servant in which He has placed no crookedness, which is instead upright and guiding others to uprightness? What is the purpose behind that? Allah explains here. So here in the Arabic language, you notice the lamb. This lamb in the Arabic language is called lamb ta'lil or the lamb of cause. It explains the reasoning behind something. Right? In the Arabic language, you use this lamb of cause on present tense verbs to explain the purpose or the, uh, the objective or reasoning behind something, right? For example, in just everyday Arabic, uh, you could say to someone, I called you لِأَسْأَلَكَ عَنْ الْمَوْضُوعِ الْفُلَانِ You could say, I called you لِأَسْأَلَكَ So that I can ask you about such and such matter. So you explain the reason for it. What is the reason? Allah Ta'ala mentions it here, that the purpose of the revelation of the book is twofold. Number one is indhar, giving warnings. And the second is uh, giving glad tidings. So what you find here is that same theme that we talked about in the Tafsir of Surah Kaf, which is the balance between fear and hope. خوف ورجاء رغبة ورهبة Fear and hope being balanced Giving glad tidings as well as warnings The two go hand in hand So the purpose of the book is to give warning As well as to give glad tidings But there is a subtlety here That most people don't pick up on 
And this is to be found in the Arabic language as a possibility. And that is identifying the pronoun. We have in the Arabic language pronouns like other languages. But in Arabic, you have this concept known as idmar, which is identifying to whom the pronoun refers. Sometimes it's not entirely clear. So if you look here at the verse before it, Alhamdulillah ladhi anzala ala abdihi al-kitaba wa lam yaj'al lahu iwaja qayyiman liyunthira ba'san shadidan. Okay? Who is mentioned in the first verse? Alhamdulillah, Allah is mentioned. Alladhi anzala ala abdihi and then the, the Prophet ﷺ is mentioned. So, in this verse, does the verb yunzir refer to the kalam of Allah in the form of the Qur'an? Or does the verb yunzir apply to the Prophet Wasallam? And who, who's doing this action of warning here? Is it the kitab? Or is it the Prophet? Or both? They go hand in hand, exactly. So this affects the translation. This means that you could read this in two different ways. Well, in that case, that's the inzal kitab, the, the revelation of the book. So you, by means of the book, he delivers the warning. So to say that it is linked to the Qur'an means it's linked to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because the Qur'an is kalam Allah, uh, sifa. So what this means is Allah is praising himself who revealed the book to his servant in which there's no crookedness. Rather, it is upright to warn, meaning that the Qur'an warns of a severe punishment from Allah or it could be mean so that he, the Prophet ﷺ, with this book, warns and gives glad tidings. So both meanings are sound. It's just, it's inherent in the Arabic language that the idmar, the pronoun can refer to one or the other. Or you could say both in that uh, he, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, by means of the kitab, delivers the warning and the glad tidings. So, and he, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, is Bashir and Nadir. He's, that's his name. Bashir, the giver of glad tidings, and Nadir, the warner. So this verse establishes the reason for the revelation of the book, the, to deliver warnings of a severe punishment from Allah Ta'ala and to give good news. But this good news is not for everyone. Allah Ta'ala says that here it's for the mu'mineen. Right? وَيُبَشِّرَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ الَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ الصَّالِحَاتِ أَنَّ لَهُمْ أَجْرًا حَسَنًا So this is specific for the believers described as those who have iman and those who do righteous actions. So you see here that warning comes before the glad tidings. Fear before hope. And the idea is that you preserve your capital before you look at gaining profit.
preserving your capital takes precedence over gaining profit because you don't want to lose your capital in the pursuit of profit. Likewise, you have to have fear of Allah Ta'ala and be warned of the hellfire. This has to be there. Averting harm takes precedence over obtaining benefit. But look at the verse. What is the nature of the Bushra, the glad tidings? If you go to the beginning, لِيُنْذِرَ بَأْسًا شَدِيدًا that he may warn or that the Qur'an warns against a severe punishment, that's hell, and gives glad tidings to the believers who do righteous actions. Glad tidings of what? What's the good news? Ajran hasana. Right? So the ajran hasanan is not simply escaping that painful punishment is getting more than just escaping hell, is actually obtaining much, much more than mere escape from punishment. It is ajran hasanan, a, an excellent reward from Allah Ta'ala. So Allah is telling us that it's not just about getting out of hell, but it's also about obtaining a excellent reward from Allah Ta'ala. But what is the Ajran Hasanan, this goodly reward. Is it a single object? Is it a single experience or enjoyment? It's not. It is the gardens of paradise for all eternity. That is the Ajran Hasanan. You know, Ajr, Ajran Hasanan is in the singular, right? But it applies to everything one may receive in Jannah, every single thing that one has and experiences for all of eternity. This is why right after this, in the next verse, Allah says, مَا كِثِينَ فِيهِ abada," In which they will abide forever. So look how Allah describes Jannah, which is a collection of blessings and enjoyments, as being ajran hasana, a, a, an excellent reward in the singular. مَاكِثِينَ فِيهِ abada, They will reside and dwell therein forever. Right? So what we see here in verses 1 through 3 is guidance by way of the book and the bearer of the book, the Prophet ﷺ. We see the warning against what will harm us in this life and the next. And glad tidings of Jannah which is for, for eternity. Those are the three things we find in verses 1 through 3. Allah praising Himself for this guidance He gave to us by means of the Prophet ﷺ, which has a warning and good news, meaning it's a means of avoiding damnation and a means of securing salvation and eternal happiness in the hereafter. That's everything in verse 1 through 3. Yes. So Khalid, Khalidin is, when you say Khalidin, it just means uh, eternity, uh, abiding. Makithin means, you could say, residing. It's a very small difference between the two. But Khuld itself is a noun pointing to time, right? If you say so, these people are Khalidin afiha abada, 
is talking about them residing uh, forever. It's a noun that carries the meaning of abiding forever with something. Makithin doesn't carry that connotation of time. It just talks about place, like residing. So abada gives you the meaning of forever, but makith you know, is to, to, to reside, to rest, to take respite, to remain in a place, right? Not temporarily, but for forever in this case. So here we have uh, verse 4. And in verse 4, وَيُنْذِرَ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا اتَّخَذَ اللَّهُ وَلَدَا And to warn those who say Allah has begotten a son. So the and here, وَيُنْذِرَ This is following from the previous verse. So it's also linked to the lamb of Ta'aleel in Yunzir. So it's, again, the purpose of the Quran is to warn of the hellfire, to give glad tidings, and to warn those who say Allah has begotten a son. This is very powerful because it means that one of the purposes of the Quran's revelation was to correct the theological excess of Christians. Allah identifies that as one of the reasons for the revelation of the Quran because in this verse the and is linked to yundir and the yundir li yundir is so this is one of the reasons this means that there is a general warning against hell that's one of the purposes of the Quran to give a general warning against hell but also a very specific warning against the theological blasphemies in saying that God has begotten a son. If you look at this verse, I mean, we just said that it's pointing to the Christian heresy. But Allah does not mention the Christians by name here. And that is because they are not the only ones who had that belief that God has offspring. So you have in this verse the general warning against anyone who says God has a son, even though primarily it was referring to the Christians. The scholars of tafsir almost always, when they get to this verse, they point out that there are three types of people historically who affirmed offspring or children for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number one, they mention some among the mushrikun of the Arabs who ascribed or described the angels as banatullah, the daughters of God. That, that's mentioned in the Quran. Some of them believe this. They believe that the uh, angels were the daughters of Allah. The second group that affirmed uh, a son for Allah was a very specific sect among the Jews who claimed that Uzair was the son of Allah. Imam al-Tabari and others mentioned this sect was in southern Arabia, but that it eventually died out. So the, the verses that mention that claim from some of these Jewish sects, 
is refuting a belief held by those people who were still alive at that time. But the sect died out, right? We don't say that your average Jew believes that. It's not found in uh, actual uh, Jewish theology, right? It was a, some subsect in a part of Southern Arabia. And lastly, those who affirmed a son for Allah were the Christians. And that is the primary uh, group affirming this uh, to whom Allah responds in this chapter and in the chapter that comes after this, Surah Maryam. Now, oftentimes in the tafsir, uh, the scholars will go into a theological discussion about the belief in God having offspring and the absurdity of that belief. And this, of course, ties into what we covered in Aqidah when we covered the necessary attributes of God, those things that are rationally necessary and rationally impossible. And the basic way we respond to it is to say that Allah Ta'ala is wajibul wujud, the necessary existent. And a so-called son must either be a necessary existent as well or a possible existent. And if that so-called son is a necessary existent, then the son has to be absolutely independent and free of all needs and cannot have a beginning or an end or have any of these things that occur with temporal beings. But if you say son, it indicates birth, it indicates coming into being, preceded by prior non-existence, dependency, uh, deriving its existence from the Father. Anything that derives its existence from another is cannot be a necessary existent that must always be because it has a beginning. So to affirm uh, a son for God is rationally absurd. A son or a daughter will, sh will share with the Father certain qualities. And that only makes sense if the father or the mother is a composite being having parts, right? This son resembles me, this daughter resembles me and that, and this one and this. That's because they're deriving their existence from you and they have in them your DNA. But God is not composed of parts. He's not divisible, right? These are basic arguments against the belief that God has a son or offspring. So we now come to verse 5. So after mentioning the general purpose of warning from hell, and then the specific purpose of warning against belief that God has a son, Allah Ta'ala then says, مَا لَهُمْ بِهِ مِنْ عِلْمٍ وَلَا لِآبَائِهِمْ كَبُرَتْ كَرِمَةً تَخْرُجُ مِنْ أَفْوَاهِهِمْ إِنْ يَقُولُونَ إِلَّا كَذِبًا They have no knowledge of this, nor did their forefathers. Grave is the word that comes out of their mouths. They say nothing but a lie. So here, after mentioning the specific warning against belief in God having children, 
Allah negates knowledge from people who make that claim. They have no knowledge of this. This is not negating from them universal knowledge. It's not saying they have no knowledge at all. It's saying that they have no knowledge of this specific thing that they're claiming. But this brings up a very important point that the scholars of tafsir address. If Allah Ta'ala having offspring is rationally impossible, how can Allah say that they have no knowledge about it? It's rationally impossible, right? If a person says, down the road behind that building is a square circle, you wouldn't tell them, you don't know that. Because we said knowledge is idrak shay It's having access to something as it truly is. And could a person ever have access to a square circle? You can have access to the terms square and circle and have a mental conception, but the existence of a thing that's an actual square circle, your knowledge, you have no access to that because it's a rational impossibility. So if God having offspring is a rational impossibility, why does Allah say they have no knowledge of such a thing, nor do their forefathers? It's, um, it's an interesting question because it's absolutely absurd to begin with. And the answer is that when you say that a person lacks knowledge of something, it can mean two possible things. It can mean they lack access to something that may be or may not be, right? Going back to that aqidah question, what's in my pocket? If you don't have access, you may guess that it's car keys. And I say, you have no knowledge of that thing because you don't have access. But the answer is not an absurdity in, its, in itself. You didn't say you have a square circle in your pocket. So that is a negation of having access. But sometimes when you say a person doesn't know something, it means that they knowledge or access has no connection to that thing because it's an absurdity to begin with. So what Allah Ta'ala is telling us is that they have no knowledge of this absurdity. Knowledge is a, it has no connection to rational absurdities except to negate them, except to negate them as things. So for them to affirm offspring for Allah is a rational absurdity and there's no way for them to make that affirmation because it's rationally absurd. Now you see this elsewhere in the Quran. In Surah Mu'minun, Allah mentions something very similar to this. He says, Whosoever calls upon a deity or a god uh, alongside Allah, la burhana lahu bihi, for which they have no proof. His account is with his Lord. Can a person say, I'm worshipping this idol and I have a burhan for it? Because the verse is saying, whoever invokes besides Allah any other deity for which they have no proof, then their account is with their Lord. How can anyone come on the Day of Judgment and say, 
Yes. However, I have a burhan. I have a proof for what I was doing. Allah is negating that there could ever be any burhan, any rational argument to justify such a thing. So this is a negation of the possibility of them uh, affirming such a thing uh, in a real sense because it's a rational absurdity. So both they and their forefathers are affirming something absurd for which their knowledge has no relation or connection. Allah is emphasizing the falsehood of this belief by uh, negating it in such a powerful way. You have, they have no knowledge concerning this thing. It's not to mean that they have no access, but it could be a possibility. It's that there's no access because it's absurd on its face. So by mentioning them and their forefathers, Allah is reminding us of something very important. They have no knowledge of this, nor did their forefathers. Why mention the forefathers? What's the lesson there? Is that these people who are saying that God has a son, they didn't reflect on the cosmos and use basic, their basic mind to understand that God has a son. It's based completely on taqlid, on blameworthy conformity to what their ancestors passed down to them. If a person observes the cosmos and all the changes around them, they come to the conclusion that all of this has a beginning and requires an originator. And the originator of all of this cannot have a beginning like these things. Therefore, there is a supreme being uh, who is not originated, who has no beginning and no end, basic reasoning will take you to that conclusion. But there is no amount of reasoning that will take you to the sound conclusion of God having a son. So their affirmation of God having a son is not based on anything rational. It's based on, we could say it's based on two things is based on faulty interpretation of prior scripture and is based on blind following what is given to them by their forefathers. Because obviously if you talk to Christians, they, those who study a little bit may justify their belief by citing verses of the Bible, but their understanding of these verses, which are English translations of something in Latin that came from Greek are very faulty and are basically far-fetched interpretations uh, that are also rationally absurd, right? So it's either that or they grew up in that environment and they're just parroting what they heard. This is why Allah Ta'ala says, مَا لَهُمْ بِهِ مِنْ عِلْمٍ وَلَا لِأَبَائِهِمْ They have no knowledge concerning this, nor do their forefathers. Grave, right? Kaburat, you have the sense of being large, great, immense, in a bad way. Grave is the word that comes out of their mouth. They say nothing but a lie. Look at the, the beauty of the Qur'an. 
is that Allah says Kaburat Kerimatan Takrujumin Afwahim. The mouth is very small compared to the rest of the human anatomy. The mouth is very small. However, the blasphemy that they're uttering is grave, kaburat, is tremendous. And in Surah Maryam, Allah mentions that the heavens are almost rent asunder. That they claim that the All-Merciful has offspring, a son. So something coming out of the small mouth, but it's very grievous and grave. And then Allah says, they say nothing but a lie. This is because a lie is basically when a person says something that is not congruent with reality. Go back to our Aqidah class. And we talked about ilm and we said that or go back to the prophetology part. We said sidq, truthfulness, is yeah, that the khabar, that what you say, is mutabiq lil-waqir. It is congruent with reality. It matches reality. So if truthfulness is that what you say matches the actual, what's actual, the lie is a statement that is not congruent with reality. Right, that's the meaning of lie. Now, what this means is sometimes a person can tell a lie and they don't think it's a lie. But what they're saying doesn't match reality. And at other times, a person can say a lie, something that doesn't match reality, and they know it doesn't match reality. So in Arabic, in the word lie, it's sometimes used for error, not a purposeful lying. And then at other times it is purposeful. So in this verse, when Allah says that they say nothing but a lie, it is a lie because it doesn't match reality, even if they believe it's true. If a person says a triangle is a, is a four-sided square, a four, sorry, a four-sided object, if they say a triangle is a four-sided object, that statement is a lie even if they think it's true. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are purposely making it up and they know that they're lying, but they're repeating a lie. Right? This is one of the reasons why the Prophet says, says, uh, it's enough for a person to be considered a liar that they just go gossip and spread whatever rumor they hear without any verification, right? They may not think they're telling a lie, but what they are relating may not even be true. So in verse 5, we have this mention of, of the belief in offspring and the negation of it. We come to verse 6, and we have the address to the Prophet ﷺ. In verse 6, Allah addresses His beloved Ali saying, فَلَعَلَّكَ بَاخِعٌ نَفْسَكَ عَلَىٰ آثَارِهِمْ إِنْ لَمْ يُؤْمِنُوا بِهَادِ الْحَدِيثِ أَسَفًا 
Perhaps you may destroy yourself with grief, chasing after them if they do not believe in this information. Uh, this translation is from uh, Mustafa Khattab's clear Quran, uh, which I generally like a lot, although I wouldn't use the word information here. It just doesn't, doesn't feel right. Yeah, message, because the hadith here means the, the Qur'an and the message of Tawheed, right? The word hadith here means either Qur'an or the divine message contained within the Risala. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's all possible. Let's, let's look at that. Uh, first, Allah Ta'ala addresses the Prophet ﷺ with the word la'alla. And la'alla... Uh, it, it serves a particular function in grammar and it is one of the sisters of Kana and those of you studying Arabic in that it makes the subject okay I'll forget all that yeah <laughs> so it makes the the subject morfur and the predicate mansub uh, here La'alla uh, is translated as perhaps and it, it has two basic usages there's the use of La'alla to express hope or yeah I mean basically hope like you wish for something to happen you're hopeful that it is the case so if I go to you I could say La'allaka bikhair La'allaka bikhair Meaning, I hope you're well. Right? The other usage is to express fear or concern or even pity. So, I may come up to you and say, I see you look like you're not feeling too well. And I say, La'allaka maridh. Same word, La'allaka. But here it would mean, doesn't mean I hope you're sick. It means it seems that you're sick or oh I hope you're not sick or are you sick it's it's all of those wrapped in one this expression of pity and concern uh, that one could be sick which of the two is meant in this verse is it hope or fear or concern yeah I don't, we probably wouldn't use the word fear because this is Allah Ta'ala addressing the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam we could say it is tasliya which is a consoling and expressing pity and mercy. So, is basically perhaps, but it's an expression of Allah's care and concern for the Prophet Perhaps you may destroy yourself with grief. So that translation you just read, can you read it again? Now perhaps you, O Prophet, will grieve yourself to death. Grieve yourself to death. Over their denial. Right. And there was another translation I heard. Did you have one? Consume yourself to death. Yes. When you look in the tafsir, uh, all of those meanings are accurate for baqi'un. Baqi'un nafsaka. 
And there's different usages for it in the Arabic language in general. Uh, but basically it means to be so consumed with sadness and grief that that consumption basically causes your own death or destruction. Basically, you, you, know, you say in English, you're going to worry yourself to death. Right? It has that meaning. Perhaps you may destroy yourself with grief. Right. So all we would add to that is, if, if, if you read it in this way, can you read that first part again? Perhaps, perhaps you would kill yourself. See, this killing part, you shouldn't understand from anything to do with suicide. It's not, that's, I would leave that just because, although the meaning is more or less accurate, it gives that connotation which is absolutely false. So we leave that. So here, the, the killing yourself basically means wor like worrying yourself to death. Yeah, grief, Out of grief, yeah. Is, uh, Like, like frustrated over the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So this verse is very clear. Allah Ta'ala is consoling the Prophet Sallallahu One of the purposes of the Qur'an is to strengthen the Prophet Sallallahu and to console him because he was filled with grief and pain over his people and their refusal to believe. He was greatly pained at their refusal and their rejection. His attitude was not one of delivering the message once, getting rejected, and then saying, okay, well, you're doomed, I'm done. No, it pained him that they rejected him because he wanted good for his people. And so this continued rejection and refusal to believe caused him great grief. So Allah is consoling him, telling him that it is up to Allah to guide them and that your duty is simply conveying the message. So it's as if Allah Ta'ala is telling him, you have fulfilled your role and carried out your duty, but they have turned away and yet you still chase after them and strive to reach them. This part, uh, points to him very eagerly going after them, going to this one and going to that one, not sitting passively and waiting for them to come to him, but he will go to them actively during the Hajj season. He's presenting himself to the tribes. He's going to this one and that one. He's going out of his way to reach them to the point where Allah describes it as if as if he's following their footsteps to look where they're going to catch up to them and to give them da'wah. So it's as if Allah is saying, go easy on yourself and do not grieve over them because Allah has placed them and every other human being on earth 
in this dunya which is a place of trial and tribulation a temporary abode and as eager as you offer their guidance they are responsible for themselves you are not responsible for whether they accept or reject the message this is the essential message Allah is consoling his Prophet Sallallahu telling him that they are in this dunya and they are responsible for accepting or rejecting the message and in this dunya they are in an abode of test and tribulations and responsibility for making the right choices that is why when you go to verse 7 right after this Allah describes the nature of this world and says so in ayah 7 and in ayah 8 Allah describes the nature of dunya we made what is upon the earth as an ornament for it to test them as to which of them is best in conduct and we will turn what is on it into barren waste now here Allah is telling us that every single thing in the dunya is a zina inna ja'alna ma ala al-ardi zinatan laha we have made what's on the earth an ornament for it an adornment for it a beautification for it this is a this is very important to understand because when something is adorned when something is beautified it is meant to attract you so if you find yourself attracted to dunya know that that's what the dunya is all about it's it's meant to attract you so that's the purpose of the adornment and the beautification of dunya and this adornment can be a huge distraction for human beings distracting them from their purpose in life dunya material wealth power prestige pleasures enjoyment all of these things are a test and Allah Ta'ala has said that here amala, to test to see which of them is best in conduct note here how Allah is saying that the dunya has been adorned to test us to see which of us is best in what we do he does not say to see which of you is the most abundant in actions no who are the best of you in actions he, he says to test you to examine you not akthar. so it's about excellence in conduct excellence in doing the right thing not doing the most and we'll close this inshallah with uh, a couple of points the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam has described the world for us and its description is consistent with how Allah describes the world he says in the hadith inna dunya hulwatun khadira wa inna allaha mustakhlifukum fiha fanadhirun madha ta'malun 
He says that the world is sweet and green and Allah makes you generations succeeding one another and watching you to see what you will do. That's the nature of dunya. It's all right there. So you have to beware of dunya. It's one of the four enemies of humanity. Uh, not the dunya as in the material sense. You know, oh, the waterfall is not your enemy. That beautiful mountain is not your enemy. We mean dunya in the material sense of what distracts you from your purpose. That's dunya. So you have four enemies. Dunya, nafs, shaitan, and hawa. Base desires and caprice. Shaitan and dunya. These are the four enemies. Right, so we have a khutbah series a couple of years ago. Uh, we did a series on each of them. So shaitan, nafs, dunya, and hawa, which is like desires. Of these four, which one is the most dangerous? Nafs. Nafs. Yeah, because well, yeah, by desires here, hawa, we don't mean desires of the nafs. Uh, in the physical sense, we mean uh, ideas, like deviated ideas and false beliefs. <laughs> yeah, nafs is the big one. So Allah ends this verse, in verse 8, uh, reminding us that the dunya is temporary and that it will come to pass, saying that we will make whatever is on it a barren plain. So Basically, all of this is going to be pulverized. As adorned and beautified as it is, it all comes to an end. All of this ends. All of it becomes like a barren plain. And there's a, a little linguistic subtlety here. And that is, if you look at verse 7 and verse 8, you'll notice that the same word is used, one in a verb form, and the other in a noun form. So in the first one, in verse 7, inna ja'alna ma ala al-ardi zinatan laha. So ja'alna is a verb. And then in verse 8, wa inna la ja'iluna ma alayha sa'idan juruza. It uses the noun form. And there's a subtlety there because it indicates the continuous power of Allah Ta'ala. As if to say that this world which Allah Ta'ala created and made in a beautified form, adorned for us and also as a test, He will make it such that it's no more. So that power of Allah is in creation and destruction. The creative power and destructive power of ending it. So we'll stop here inshallah. In the next class we cover, go right into the story of Ashab al-Kaf and we have to give a bit of background into those people and the history, inshallah. In ayah 7, the name of Laha is going to be. In ayah 7, yeah. 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 But Ard is so we made what's upon the earth an ornament for it. Dunya. It's Zinatul Dunya. Zinatul Hayatul Dunya. When you were saying that the 
which are not the most most good action, but the best action, not I'm emphasizing about the quantity. Right. So we Right, so we have, we have quantity and quality. The kemiya and the kefiya. The, ha, the, the quality of something or the quantity. Uh, so for example, uh, let's use one of the old debates from the 1990s. And that is uh, how many rak'ahs are in Salat Tarawih. Uh, how many rak'ahs are in Tarawih? Who has the answer? Depends on what your understanding of. It's a nafil. So generally in the madahib, 20 is your standard. In the Madaki school, you can. There's even 35, and, and and you know, in our history, we have different places and times praying even more than that. But 20 is the standard based on the hadith of Omar, radiallahu anhu, and there was never any controversy about that for a thousand plus years, until the 1950s and 60s, when certain people appeared on the scene who were kind of self-taught who felt that the tahajjud of the Prophet ﷺ, his qiyamul layl, which was consistently eight plus three rak'ahs, uh, is the only thing one should be doing for any uh, night prayers, voluntary night prayers. And they made a big hue and cry over people praying more than that. It was a, a manufactured controversy that didn't need to be there. but. Anyhow, to address the issue of quality versus quantity, um, 20 rak'ahs is the standard view. And if you look at how a lot of places offer those 20 rak'ahs, you find it's often very rapid. There's not a lot of focus. It's a rapid-fire qira'ah to get them done as soon as they can. And then you have some people who pray eight rak'ahs in Ramadan and Tarawih the same way, all right? So which one should you do? Should you go for uh, quality over quantity or quantity over quality? Well, ideally, you should put them together. I mean, alhamdulillah, we can say here that tarawih is 20 in terms of quantity is 20 and in quality alhamdulillah it's quite good it's not rushed through in any way right so if you put them together it's good sometimes quantity is also helpful because the prophet sallallahu said that the when a person makes abundant ruku' in sujood the sins fall off and for this reason, scholars say, if a person has a lot of sins they're struggling with, it's actually superior for them to pray lots of raka'at instead of standing in qiyam for a long time, only doing a few raka'at. Because it's just more sins dropping from them. But in the ideal situation, you have quantity and quality combined. So in this verse, 
Allah Ta'ala is saying that we're tested in the dunya so that it may be shown who among us is best in action. So Ahsan is talking about the quality of what you do. But here's something you should never forget. Uh, quantity is itself a, a quality on its own, right? Quantity is itself a quality. So if you pray two rak'ahs with lots of khushu' for fajr, and then you skip dhuhr, asr, maghrib, and isha, you're lacking, even if your first two rak'ahs had lots of khushu'. Meanwhile, if you prayed all of your five prayers with a minimum khushu', you fulfilled your obligation. Which one should you be doing? You should be filling the obligation, even if you have less khushu'. So quantity is itself, its own, it's a quality unto itself. So it's not that a person does minimal, but they do really good in that minimal that they do. It means that they do their best in everything they do. They strive for ihsan in what they do. And it's not just about uh, racking up large numbers of this and that, but it's about putting ihsan into that act. Right? The ihsan, the excellence. Right? Khair. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.